Well, I know this is uh, to speak the obvious, but we have just been through a bitter political campaign. Uh, the tone for that, frankly, was set by both of the candidates and uh, their surrogates, and we have certainly seen the, uh, the fruit of that uh, now here in the days since Tuesday in terms of how people are responding uh, to, to the outcome on, on both sides. Those on the left... Those on the left surveyed the state of our nation and the needs of our nation and said the only way that we're going to move forward in a helpful way is to elect Hillary Clinton. They were denied that wish and are many, many are angry and bitter. Those on the right said, surveying the same country, surveying the same needs, said, no, 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 no. The need that we have, the way to go forward is going to be to elect Donald Trump. They got what they wanted and are now, many, uh, quite glad and quite relieved. Here's the thing. Given enough time, given enough time, those on the right will eventually start to feel worse than those on the left. And here's why. They got what they asked for. And I'm not talking about the candidate. Please don't, that's not where I'm going. But this is just the simple reality of the way it is. When you put all your freight, all your hopes, all your dreams on the messianic relationship, experience, achievement, or political play, you are going to be disappointed because those promises will not deliver. And you're going to end up feeling worse having gotten what you asked for than if you'd never gotten it at all because now you're angry and bitter the thing you put your hope in has betrayed you. That's the cycle. That's the cycle as it spins itself up. And it's, it's hardly, you can hear, I hope you hear what I'm saying, it's hardly uh, uh, limited to just the political arena. It's all of life. All of life is, is like that. There's these mirages, these illusions, these false hopes that, are, that cannot deliver. We, here's how this happens. We have too, way too small a view of the problem. That's where it begins. Way too small a view of the problem. Therein we have way too small a view of the solution to that problem. And therein we are looking to way too small a savior to be the solution to save us from the problem. Which then sets in motion the disappointment, the disillusionment, the anger, and the bitterness. And it cuts across all of life. What does the Bible say to this? Is there any news for us here? Is, do we just have to wallow in that? Is that just, well, okay, that's it, dismissed. Is there hope to be had? Yes, absolutely there is. There's, there's sanity to be had in all of this. So I'd ask you now to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, this is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Matthew chapter 9 is where we are. Moving on through our study of Matthew's Gospel, we are in beginning chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did that day. Thank you such that you uh, loved that man and the people around to, to act in the way that you did. And thank you that you would love us and so many countless before us such that we have this text preserved for us and passed down through the ages that we would be able to watch and listen in and, and oh, we pray now to learn. To learn what's going on here, the, the significance the significance of these events uh, for them and for us. Oh, would you please give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts softened to your touch, such that we would then move, move forward out of this, live out of this, truly, gladly. In your name we pray. Amen. The battle between smartphone manufacturers is an interesting one to watch. Each one is, is vying uh, for your attention, for your loyalty, trying to make all the time, make improvements on um, the camera uh, abilities, the battery power, the durability of the thing, in some cases lack of flammability, um, also the aesthetics of it. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying, they're vying in, 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 this, in this market. And, and oftentimes, most times really, the reviews are, are pretty good. They're, you know, you'll, you'll get online and you'll check and see, you know, whoever it is that you want to read up on and whatever the product is you want to read up on. And they'll say something like this, wow, this is it's like the $6 million man. This is better, stronger, and faster uh, than, than, than the last one. This is a, a real improvement over, over the, the last model. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't go like that. Sometimes the reviews are somewhat mixed. And the person checking out this phone is just going to say, you know what, with all candor, there's really nothing special or spectacular about this. It's, you know, the, the last model, the last one they churned out was, you know, pretty much just as good, if not better. Sometimes you see that and you wonder, what's it there for? I say this because I think sometimes when you read this text, that's exactly the sense we have. What's so spectacular about this? I mean, given what you've already read, as you've read through Matthew, what's the big deal? Why is this here? Isn't it, It's just one more healing, right? I mean, you know, not to that guy, but I mean, as far as us so far removed, we kind of look back on this and we're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, let me remind you of a few things. Okay, so the, the book of Matthew, a major theme in the book of Matthew is the gospel of the, the kingdom. That is to say, the good news, the news of God's rule and reign come on earth. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. He is manifest, he is shown, he has proven his authority by word and deed through his teaching and his miracles. We've seen a few of these miracles, in particular, especially over the course of, of Matthew 8. We have seen him, uh, let's see, cleanse a leper, 
uh, heal a centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. He has stilled a storm and he has cast out some demons. And now we come here to, to Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, and the healing of this paralytic. And we might find ourselves tempted to say, well, what's the big deal? You know, these other ones are just as impressive in terms of the miracles. These other events, these, these works seem to be just as impressive, maybe even more so than this one. What's the big deal? And oh, my friends, we, that, if, that would be just the wrong way, oh, so wrong way to read this passage. In fact, I think a case could be made that this is the greatest miracle so far. Jesus here is showing himself to have authority, not just over disease, not just over nature, not just over the demons, but over our sin. Now let that sink in for a minute. Those of you who dare to be honest with yourselves in terms of your, the condition of your own heart, even as Roger was praying a little while ago, you know, the sins of commission, that which we do that we shouldn't be doing, that sins of omission, that which we should be doing and fail to do, and now the cross-section and thought and word and deed. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is showing himself to have authority, not just over nature and disease and the demons, but our sin. In fact, what we're seeing here is that through his healing of this paralytic, he meets our deepest need, the deepest need of all. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sin. The deepest, deepest need we have. And he shows that he and he alone can meet it. How so? Let's look at this in three parts. Our great need is great supply, and it all coming at a great cost. Our great need, his great supply, and it coming at a great cost. So the great need, verses 1 and 2. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so a lot of expectations surely were in the air that day. Those of you who have read the other Gospels may know that in, in Mark and in Luke, this is a bit more in terms of, of description that goes on there. And Matthew is truncated, compressing it just a little bit. He, he's trying to stress some certain things, expectations that day, assumptions that the people, that this man, the paralytic, and his friends that are bringing him to Jesus, these assumptions that they have about the teacher. Surely they know, they have heard stories of his power and of the healings that have taken place. And they can only be assuming maybe, maybe he can, he will, can do it again. So assumptions about the teacher. Also assumptions about the need. They are assuming, this man surely is assuming, well, let me just back up and say, we don't know much about this man's physical condition. We know he's described as a paralytic. We don't know the extent of that. We don't know how long he's been like that. We don't know how severe this is, how painful it is. We do know, it's just because of what we know that part in, that, that era in human history, that medical care, the ability to treat this would have been severely limited. And in addition to that, that then meant that in terms of the burden he would have had to deal with would have been quite significant. 
And so it's certainly logical, certainly understandable, if he's coming, well, being brought to Jesus with this thought in his mind, if only I could walk, if only I could walk, that would fix everything. That's my greatest need. That's what I need to have taken care of by this teacher, by this miracle worker with his power. If only I could walk, then that would do it. So those are the assumptions. Jesus speaks to those assumptions and gives an assurance. Verse 2, what does he say? Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, you could understand why the man might be a little confused at this point. He's, may, I, we, we're not, you know, nothing is said that, of what he said, but you can understand what his thoughts might be. Well, thanks, but it's not really what I need. Legs. See these? Don't work. That's what I need. Jesus, though, is saying two things, explicitly and implicitly. Explicitly, he's saying your sins are forgiven. That is to say that your sin, your iniquity, your transgressions have been removed. That this broken, ruptured relationship between you and your God, your Creator, has been restored, repaired. You're forgiven. Explicitly, that's what he's saying. Implicitly, he's saying, and that's your greatest need. You are forgiven, and that's your greatest need. This paralysis, I know it stinks. I know it's hard. I know it's horrible. I know it's terrible. But you need to know that's not your greatest need. Great as it is, that's not your greatest need. The condition of your heart, the forgiveness of your sins, that is your greatest need. And that's ours too. There's a quote I came across this week. I put it in the uh, quotes and notes. Um, second one from Peter Christologist. He was a, an Italian bishop in the 5th century. The, the last part of that quote there, the last sentence, it's, it's Jesus, the reason I'm quoting this and saying this, is Jesus is dealing with this man much like a doctor and a patient. Okay, And this is what Christologist says along those lines. In fact, my brothers, when does a doctor ever inquire into or examine the wishes of those who are ailing? For a patient is prone to be of a contrary mind in his wishes and demands. That is to say, in the examination room, whose opinion should trump the others? The patient or the doctor? Who knows what they're talking about? Who knows what the deal is that needs to be addressed? The real problem, the real solution. What needs to happen? Not the patient. Paralytic, but the doctor, Jesus. We need to read ourselves into this man, see ourselves as being that man. Are we hearing what Jesus is saying to us this morning? Are we really hearing that more than, hear me, hear me, I need to hear this too, we all need to hear this, more than relief from the thing that you just want to be relieved of desperately, more than the achievement of the thing that you want so compulsively, this is what you need. The forgiveness of your sins. The condition of your heart to be addressed. 
more than anything else. Now, let me just, if I could, may share with you some of the images that the Bible uses describing what forgiveness is that may help us, you know, kind of grapple with this just a little bit. Forgiveness, according to the Bible, is where there was once a rupture in a relationship, where there was once estrangement and enmity, there is now reconciliation. It is the lavish welcome poured out upon the, the prodigal returned. It is, it is the, the, um, the sin, the iniquity, the transgression removed, cast, this is the words of the prophets, cast behind God's back, cast into the deepest depths of the sea, as far as the east is from the west. All these images that are, that are used here. The, are, are the filth, the defilement, cleansed, washed, the debt we justly, desperately owe, paid in, in full. The bondage, the chains, broken, sweet freedom granted. That's how the Bible speaks of forgiveness. And Jesus says to this man and to us, Take heart, my son, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. That's the message of the gospel. That's our great need. And that, that by, by what Jesus is doing, by what he's saying here, we see that he is the one who has come to heal us of our deepest, deepest need. But that then takes us to the second point, and that is to, to speak of his great supply. How, how, how can he do this? this? This man from Galilee. Let's pick up in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Okay, the scribes, you need to understand who they are. These are religious authorities, um, on the whole, admired and looked up to by, by the people. Uh, this, by the way, is the first instance in, God, in, in Matthew's Gospel where we see some hostility begin to, to bubble up from this quarter. And it's, of course, going to continue to come, until it comes to a boil later on. Uh, they have assumptions, too. It's not just uh, the man and his friends, but they have some assumptions as, as well when it comes to sin and suffering. They understand what the Bible has to say. You know, that it, it is actually true to say that, that sin ultimately is at the root of all suffering. That is to say, trace back to the fall. The fall, that's why, that's how suffering comes into the world. Okay, That's true. The problem is they had taken it a, a step or two or twenty too far by saying, if you're sick, if you're suffering, it's your fault. You, personally, as an individual. Now, that's not true. Well, I mean, it's possible in some cases, but certainly not in all. Certainly not in all, but that's the way they understood it. That's one assumption that they have, an, an, an erroneous one. Another has to do with, with Jesus, and um, well, it goes like this. I mean, they understand the Bible is absolutely, you know, speaks on this point. 
uh, that only God ultimately can forgive. Only God ultimately can forgive. And now they hear Jesus claiming that authority. Jesus claiming that right. Jesus claiming that prerogative. And so the only category they have then, because they're hearing a man speak these words, they have no other category but then to say, well, then you are blaspheming. And that, by the way, is a, is a penalty subject to, to, to death. Think of it this way. Paint, I'm going to try and paint this picture for you. So you have Larry, Curly, and Moe. You may have heard of them. These three guys, okay? And, and typical, as is the case with these three, Larry, wait, who is it? Larry punches Curly right in the nose. Curly is furious. He's angry with Larry. And, and, and then all of a sudden, Moe comes, the third guy, comes in, and he says to Larry, the one who did the punching, he says, Larry, I forgive you. Now you understand there's some confusion now at this point because Larry is looking at Curly and he knows he's the one that punched him and he says to Mo, I didn't punch you, I punched him. Why are you offended? And then Mo says, you need to understand that whatever you did to him, ultimately you did to me. And so I forgive you. It's kind of like that with what we're seeing here in a profound way that goes way beyond that silly story. Um, Jesus speaks into this, and it's really we're at something of a crisis point. You, you, because at this, so, so you have Jesus saying what he said, the scribes now saying what they've said, and it now begs the question, and everything hinges on what's about to happen. Is Jesus a blasphemer? Does he or does he not have the authority to forgive sin. What's about to happen will answer that question. And, and you see, he, Jesus, if you will, puts his own authority, his divine authority to the test. It, it, because you know, it's one thing to say that, I forgive you, or you're, rather your sins are forgiven. It's one thing to be able to say that, but how do you prove that? How can anyone know, right? There's no external way of knowing if that person's sins are in fact forgiven. So he puts this to the test and he turns back to the man and now instead of just granting him an assurance, he gives him a command, right? And you, you see that here in verse, in verse 6. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. So now we see the test is the results of the test are in. Jesus has authority to heal, and therein shows himself with the same divine authority to forgive. He's making clear what is our greatest need, and he's also making clear that he and he alone can meet that need out of his great supply. Some of you have had this experience. You've applied for a, to a school. I'm going to use college, a university, as the context of this story. And oftentimes, you find yourself, uh, if you're not want, if not wanting, at least maybe even needing, uh, to apply for scholarships. And, and in some cases, depending on what you get, that could be a free ride, right? I mean, if you've got the test scores, if you've got the grades, if you've got the references, if you've got the resume, I mean, the university may choose to pay for everything. And that's granted to you then uh, in recognition of what you've done, 
right? What you've achieved, what you've earned, and yet also with the expectation of yet more to come. Like you're going to continue on that track, and so they're granting you this scholarship. Okay, here's a fanciful scenario. What if it was possible? You know, you're, you're the one making the application, and then you find out from the university that there's actually another student who's earned, who's got, he's earned the free ride, he or she, and has given it to you. Now, that's not going to happen in a university. Okay, so don't get your hopes up. But um, what if? What if? Um, that means there's nothing to earn, nothing to achieve, no works to do, no worth to prove, no standing to secure because it's all been done. You're free. Go, go, go. That's what we're seeing here. In terms of our deep, deep need and Jesus' supply. Now, I wonder, though, how many of us, you know, you're hearing that, but you're not getting it. We're not, we're, you know, how many of us need to wrestle with this question? I mean, maybe something like this. What areas of my life clearly need to be impacted by this this message. Where am I running around frenetic, restless, anxious, worked up, worried? What if it doesn't happen? What will they say? What will they think? What will come of this? What will come of that? But what if you believe this? What if you took this to heart? What are the rest that that could bring to your soul? Jesus is showing here our great need, our greatest need, is the forgiveness of our sins, and it has been met in full. But that then begs a question. Now to the third point. But really, how is he able to do this? It takes us from thinking about, talking about our great need and his great supply to how it comes about through a great cost. Again, as I said earlier, it is, this was easy to say, for Jesus just to say, take heart, my son, your, your sins are forgiven. It was easy to say. It could have been dismissed. We know from, from ancient historians that there were many messiahs, false pretenders, uh, in, in those times. It could have, they, you know, whatever, you know, you're just another one of those. It could have been easily dismissed, but now, you know, because of what happens, it's impossible to refute. You know, Jesus, because he says rise and walk, and the man does, he then has the ability, the authority, the right, the prerogative to say, you're forgiven. Yeah. But it's still difficult to achieve. Or I can put it this way. You may have heard it put it this way, or put this way. This grace, this forgiveness, comes to us free, but at a great, great cost. At the highest cost imaginable. You see, the, the, okay, the, the healing of this paralytic, imagine you're him. What a day you've had, right? You got up, well, to whatever degree you can. You get, you're awake. Your friends come to you. You've heard of this teacher. He's come back from the other side of the lake. They're going to take you, likely it's Peter's house, and, and you're, they're going to take you over there where so much of this has happened before. And, and, and your expectations are, are, you know, maybe, maybe this, and it turns out it's, whoa. That 
so far beyond your expectations. I mean, strength return to your limbs. Assurance and life come into your, your spirit, your soul. But here's the thing. For that man to rise and walk, Jesus had to be raised and killed. And by that I mean raised on a cross. See, however bright the sun was, and whatever the weather was like that day on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee there in the town of Capernaum, the shadow of the cross loomed very large on what was happening. Oh, so very large. In fact, this is why Jesus came. I mean, thinking to Matthew 1, Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21, this is the words to Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. That's what his mission, his task was all about. So, we have this great need, met by his great supply, but again, coming at the greatest cost. And again, I, these questions, I think we need to just engage with and think through. Are we hearing this? Are we seeing this? Are we grasping this? You know, the need, his meeting that need, but what it cost him to do that. Oh my goodness, what response then? What response then ought to then come from any of us, as we grasp that, as that is beginning to settle into our hearts. I mean, how do you say thank you enough? You can't. That's why it goes on for eternity, that thank you. It's why we're called to, as Paul says in Romans 12, to offer up our lives as a sacrifice to him, to give him our, our strength, to put in him our, our hope, I mean, given the fact that all else has been done that can be done, what else can we do? Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, the uh, 18th century uh, hymn writer, when the reality of all this broke in on his life, it utterly changed him. His destructive habits died. There was this new vibrancy in his preaching. He gladly, regularly gave himself to caring for condemned men in Newgate Prison. Uh, on the first anniversary of his conversion, he wrote an 18-stanza hymn. You may recognize the first lines, and we're going to sing it in just a few minutes. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. That's what our response looks like as we're grappling with this and it's beginning to settle into our hearts. Well, if I can move from Charles Wesley to, to C.S. Lewis. Lewis captured this not in a, in a hymn, but in a story. Uh, we, we know it today as the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And maybe some of you as part of the Narnia Chronicles, maybe some of you are familiar with this. There's this kid named Eustace. He was this brat. I mean, uh, mean, uh, unkind about it, any and everyone he could possibly come into contact with. It, um, he uh, was despised by everyone, and he despised everyone 
else. And, and he's magically transported to this, this ship in the land of Narnia, the, the, the Dawn Treader. And over the course of events, they, come to, they stop at an island, and uh, he, he gets out, he wanders off, and he finds this cave. And this cave is filled with treasure. And he thinks to himself, ha, now I'm going to get the upper hand on everybody who's done me down. And then I, you know, he's exhausting his delight. He decides to take a nap on top of all this treasure, which, by the way, turns out to be a dragon's hoard. And having fallen asleep in a dragon's hoard with dragonish thoughts in his mind, he wakes up as a dragon. And as the reality of what has now happened to him be begins to break on him, he begins to despair. He's stuck like this. He can't undo this. Uh, he's going to be left behind, terrible and horrible forever. But then the mighty lion, Aslan, comes to him. And Aslan comes and, and says to him that you are to uh, undress and get in that pool. And by undressing, Eustace comes to quickly realize he means take off the dragon skin. So he begins to gnaw and claw as best he can, and he's peeling layer after layer after layer, but it, it, it can't. It's like this endless eternal onion. And he begins to despair of all hope of getting this off of him. And then Aslan says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And this is what Eustace relays to his companions later. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby-looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. Eustace's need was greater than he knew. His predicament was greater than he knew. He needed to be undragoned, but he nor anyone else was going to have the ability to do that but Aslan. And he did. Just like that paralyzed man in Capernaum many years ago. And just like all of us, our need is so much greater than we know. His supply is so much greater than I think we dare to hope. And met at the highest cost himself. Let's pray. Lord, we have assumptions here this morning, just as the people then did. We have assumptions about what our own needs are, what we believe to be the greatest pressing thing. We have expectations. We come to you. In essence, if not really saying, if you love me, then surely you'll give this thing or take this thing away. And Lord, our needs are real, and you see them, but you are determined to go deeper into the most vital pressing areas of our lives. You are in every sense, in the richest, deeper sense, deepest sense, the Savior. We thank you for teaching us that, showing us that, oh, would you please help us to believe it and live out of it. In your name we pray. Amen. I may ask our ushers to come forward, walking us through, uh, helping us, assisting us in this time of still yet responding in uh, the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'm going to read to you this, this um, parable that Jesus 
tells in regards to all of this, I'm, I'm not going to say a word, but just to read it. It speaks for itself. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's give with that in mind.